coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Day one of the election campaign. Another statue of John A. McDonald tumbles. The situation is getting worse in Afghanistan. And we talk racing with Canadian legend Ron Fellows. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Chris Thompson, Scott's son. I'm not sure what will be more of a grind. A global pandemic or listening to politicians during an election campaign. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, I'm a second that way. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Certainly lots to talk about now. All right. Uh, as you know, uh, we have, uh, we are now, uh, well, just kicking off a federal election campaign. Uh, on Sunday, the, uh, Prime Minister made the trip to the Governor General and, of course, um, Dissolve Parliament, and off we go. 36 days, so uh, the shortest it can be, so that's one way to look at it. Uh, but where is it going? Is this a priority for Canadians? A lot, including this one here, is asking, why are we doing this now? Uh, it, it was funny because um, you look back at the early stages of this pandemic, there was a throne speech, all of that other sort of stuff. There was, um, uh, uh, during, I guess, between the first and the second wave, the prime minister was looking for a window there to hold uh, an election. That didn't happen. And, of course, the dash has been on since uh, to, to try to find the most opportunity moment uh however way back when nobody wanted to trigger the election um you, you know the opposition just uh, basically uh for the most part just kept passing everything and and of course after vigorous debate um but for the most part uh, there was nothing to trigger an election uh and now we're at the point where uh it doesn't matter who triggers it um house is not even sitting and and the uh, prime minister has uh, decided to uh, do it himself. Let's bring in David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent, Global News. He is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, no, happy to be here. Uh, obviously, the Prime Minister holding a news conference now. Uh, are Canadians asking the question why we're doing this now? And as I mentioned before, uh, you remember between the first and second waves when that was there was a small window there. It was as if uh, he was trying to uh, trigger the uh, or, or uh, pressure the uh, opposition into triggering an election. Uh, this time, going it alone. Why the different strategy here? Yeah, I mean the why now question. Yeah, I guess Canadians were asking, but we asked that once, twice, three, four, five times yesterday when he came out of Rita Hall. The, uh, his political opponents, Jagmeet Singh, Aaron O'Toole, also say this is unnecessary election. But Trudeau's answer when you say why now is, well, why not now? And his argument is, you know, we're shifting from pandemic to recovery. Why wouldn't you want to have a national discussion about where we're going? Why wouldn't you want to have uh, a time to choose the leaders for the next recovery? So that's his answer. You know, the experience I've had watching the and reporting on the provincial pandemic elections we've had. And we've had, we're, we're actually, one's going on right now. We've had one in B.C., Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, Labrador. One's happening in Nova Scotia. This is the same sort of question. What are we doing having an election in a pandemic? It's something that people talk about for the first week. But here's the other thing. In B.C., there was a premier there who had a minority, John Horgan. He saw himself jump in the polls. And boom, he went and called a snap election. And everybody said, oh, that's a public health danger, et cetera, et cetera. He got a majority. In New Brunswick, Blaine Higgs, conservative premier, had a minority, looked across the aisle, saw super weak liberal opposition, and he said, to heck with it, I'm calling my snap election in a pandemic. What happened to him? He won a majority. So you can see where I'm going here. Trudeau's also thinking that incumbents have been doing very well in Canadian provincial elections, and he's looking at the polls and while his leads aren't as big as what John Horgan had in B.C. or Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick, he's got an, enough of a lead that it's a reasonable gamble. But it's a gamble. It's not locked in at all that he could uh, win this election or win it a majority. Campaigns will matter. And a lot really rides on, in my opinion, how strong Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet is. And he's right now pretty good. And Jugmeet Singh and the NDP. And particularly, you know, I'll tell you what, you're going to see a lot of leaders come to the Hamilton area 
Because think of all the open seats, all the vacant seats you've got, and they will be fighting over them. We talked about up on the mountain. Scott Duval is, is, is not running again. NDP don't want to hold that one. But on the other hand, the NDP want to steal Bob Bertina's old seat in Stony Creek. They used to hold that one, you remember. Uh, mm-hmm. The Liberals will be gunning for David Sweet's seat. That's a conservative who's out in the Ancaster. They'll be one of trying to take that. In, in Brantford, Phil McCollum, the conservative, he's not running. That used to be liberal forever and ever, provincially. So the liberals are going to want to see if they can steal Brantford. Diane Finley in Haldeman, Norfolk. Guess who's running there? Leslyn Lewis. Remember her? She finished, what, third in the conservative leadership race? The, the Tories won her. And listen, trust me, there's tons of action in, uh, in that golden horseshoe around, uh, around your neck of uh, Lake Ontario. Uh, intercom, Will. Uh, let, let's go back to the question, David, about triggering the election. Does it matter who triggered this? Again, minority government, we know what that's like. Uh, you know, everyone uh, juggling for position and such, and and whoever can get the votes uh, wins. When that breaks down and there's loggerheads and, 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 you know, there's just nowhere to go, that's when an election is usually called because we can't move forward. The Parliament, the House can't move forward. Different scenario this time. Does that matter at all? Uh, it, it, I don't think it's going to matter once you go to cast a ballot. And it doesn't really matter today, anyhow, for the uh, political opponents. That was their message yesterday. And, uh, you know, all through to may get some questions on it from time to time and say at town hall. Uh, you know, the, the experience we've seen in provincial elections is it, it's, it's not going to matter when it comes time to ballot. And, in fact, people are voting right now. And parties are, like, when I say right now, you can download or start to, the process to download a mail-in ballot. Soon, uh, returning offices will be open for extra advance in-person voting so we can cut down on the crowds on Election Day. And what's the implications of that? Well, the Conservatives just dropped their entire platform. Their entire platform is out this morning. It's online. It's got a very buff-looking Aaron O'Toole and a t-shirt on the cover. you got to check it out. He's, uh, you know, he's been running, working out, and just showing Good for him. Um, and why would you drop a platform on day two? Well, I just mentioned, because parties and campaigns that go for that early voter in a pandemic election are, are rewarded. Not only do they lock in a vote that is now not going to change, but if you know your neighbor voted tomorrow, I bet your neighbor said, yeah, I voted for you know, so-and-so. Uh, and you might be persuaded, A, to vote for that person. So this is pandemic elections and an early call. That how it happened? The parties are all moved on beyond that. Right now, it's we got 35 days, and you have got to start getting votes in your tank right now. You're going to see text messages. That's another way parties are going to communicate with voters. We can't have these big rallies. You know, parties go out and they buy a bunch of cell phone numbers from a phone company and start blitzing your text messages. You'll get annoyed by some, but the party you're supporting might find you that way, and that's how you're going to. They're going to find you and get you to a poll. So. You know, this is a very, there's going to be a very different experience for Ontario voters because we've never done a pandemic election. They've done it in five other provinces. They'll be a little familiar with this, but it's going to feel a whole lot different. You bring up a very valid point here, David, and, and usually when there's an election, whether it's 36 days, 46 days, what have you, uh, there's certainly a pace to the campaign. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end where you hope to end up. Th- that's sort of all gone out the window now, hasn't it? As, you, as you've just mentioned, you can vote whenever you want. So it, it's less about getting those people on polling day. It's about, as you said, filling the tank now and, and, yeah, and as and soon as possible. Let me just give you some, some interesting stats. So in 2019, 50,000 Canadians voted by mail. 50,000. There's 18 million of us voted, and only 50,000 voted by mail. Elections Canada believes that this time, 5 million Canadians are going to vote by mail. Okay, so what does that mean? I'm going to use the example from the B.C. election. First of all, there's a partisan divide when it comes to how you do advanced ballot. Small-C conservative voters tend not to like the mail-in ballot. They do like advanced in-person voting, and they will find an advanced in-person poll, okay? So, but they don't like mail-in. The younger, uh, more progressive voters, they're happy with mail-in ballots. I'm going back to B.C. now. The NDP in B.C. attracted that woke millennial younger voter. And you know what the B.C. NDP had to do? They had to teach young people how to work an envelope. I swear to God, where hmm. does the stamp go? What's that red box at the end of my street for? Well, that's where you put the envelope. <laughs> Actually, you put this. It was, it was like that. But when it comes to mail-ins, the mail-ins do skew towards partisan. Here's another example, and this is from B.C. 
the the BC Liberal Party, as you probably know, is really a, a small C conservative party. Well, when you counted up the ballots that were only cast in person, the BC Liberals lost by seven points, and they kind of knew they were going to lose. But so they were seven points on in-person ballots only. Now, mail-in ballots, which accounted for more than a third of all the ballots cast, the BC Liberals lost by 22 points. Think about that. They lost by seven on the in-person stuff. They lost by 22 on the mail-in. I guarantee you it's a very small country when it comes to backroom political operators. The federal conservatives took a look at that. They will be reaching out to their partisans, showing, telling people mail-in works. And mail-in in Canada is not like mail-in in the United States. Every single ballot is verified by a human being. Every single ballot is opened by a human being, no machines. Every single mail-in ballot is counted by a human being, multiple human beings. No machines are involved. And here's the other thing, then, when we think about it. On Election Day, if we've got 5 million mail-in ballots that we have to open and count by hand, and we can't start until 8 o'clock at night, that's the rules, we're not going to know the results, maybe, until a couple of days after Election Day. That is bizarre right there. One step forward, two st- uh, steps back, it almost seems. Uh, talking about how this will be a COVID uh, campaign, David, the fact that it's 36 days as short as it can be, wh- how does that fit into this? Well, uh, it, it, the, the campaigns themselves are, are taking a bit of a different approach. Uh, Judmeet Singh so far is really the only sort of traditional approach to campaigning. He, he started yesterday. He was in Montreal. There was a pride parade, and you know what those are like. A lot of people, and Judmeet Singh was in his element around a lot of people in high energy. But um, Justin Trudeau, who also likes a big rally, he hasn't done any of that. It's more small-scale events, again, trying to be in line with public health things. But the most remarkable one is, is Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives. Um, the Conservatives have built their own TV studio here in downtown Ottawa. It's just a block in a hotel, a block from, from our bureau. And that's where O'Toole was yesterday. He wasn't out with anybody. He was in his TV studio. He held a virtual town hall with B.C. voters. He held a virtual town hall with Quebec voters. The party says 38,000 people dialed in at some point. We have no way to verify that, but that's what they say. Today, he did his release of his platform in his TV studio. And this evening at 7 o'clock, if you want, you can can dial in to a virtual town hall. Aaron O'Toole will do from his TV studio in Ottawa with Ontario voters. That's how O'Toole is doing it. We don't think he's going to get on the road and out of Ottawa until Wednesday. That is a complete and huge change. Every other federal election campaign I've covered, a leader like the Conservatives or Liberals, you know, they hop on the plane and they go east for the first week. They hop on the plane, they go west for the second week. You know, they, they, they get around the country. That's, they, that they spend the money on a plane. At this time, the, the Conservatives are really showing it, you know, virtual, safe for everybody. So that's, that's one of the big, big changes here. Uh, for the prime minister, can he can he uh, uh, redo his past campaigns, and will that work for him? Uh, we remember the sunny ways, the energy, and you know the new direction, and all that sort of thing. Can you still sell that? How how what will be the tone of this campaign? Do you think for him? But it, it, they definitely will keep the, the the a positive tone, but I think you will see them taping. We've already seen it, Jack. Them that that Trudeau will sort of take some chip shots uh, at Aaron O'Toole. I think the campaign to watch is Jagmeet Singh's, and you mentioned that Jagmeet Singh could block liberal uh, attempts to win a majority. So I think at some point you may see Justin Trudeau start to take some chip shots at Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. But right now, yes, it's positive. But for the for the basically the prime minister of the country, and that that is the liberal leader, you know, we got a situation in Afghanistan right now, and he has to respond to that. And that was the dominant question at his campaign stop today. Um, are you doing enough to get some of those desperate people out of Afghanistan? And so that's, you know, you can't be all, uh, you know, dancing around in, in sunny ways when you've got a very serious issue um, facing you. And we are still in a pandemic. So, you know, Trudeau has matured, if you want to use that word, through the, this is his third campaign as leader. And, and, you know, I think he'll be, he'll be playing the role of the prime minister of the country and trying to stress he wants the, the mandate, essentially, to continue what he's been doing so far as managing the economy today, what they were talking about was um, <clears throat> more subsidies for businesses. Okay, um, that's popular with some businesses. We'll see how that works. Uh, the the you know, tool conservatives also have some assistance for businesses who are still trying to trying to pick up for the pandemic. But I think the tone will be, um, it, it, you know, it's 
serious stuff. What's going on in the world these days? BC's on fire right now. I mean, anybody who goes near BC, you've got to account for the fact that they don't care about an election. That the entire province is on fire. Um, so it's a lot going on. It's going to be you know the tone is going to be have to reflect world events and events here in Canada. Uh, real quick here, David, what do you think the chances are that we end up exactly back where we are now? Pretty darn good, actually, with a minority liberal government. Uh, yeah. I think they're pretty good. And I think if that happens, um, there will be liberals in the country who will say, maybe we should have a little leadership chat about uh, where we go. Maybe even Justin Trudeau will decide if he doesn't win a majority. <laughs> actually, even if he wins a majority. You know, Trudeau has been the leader of the party since 2013. 2013? Yes. Uh, so, you know, that's a while now. That's eight years. And, um, you know, maybe maybe he will want to pack it in. But if we do come back with everything the same, um, you know, I think the conservatives will once again try to eat O'Toole. Who knows? I mean, don't forget, Andrew Scheer won the popular vote. Andrew Scheer won 20 more seats than, the, than Harper did in 20, 2015, and he lost his job. So mm. the barrier is very high for O'Toole. If he doesn't form a government, if it comes back and it's still a minority, you know, O'Toole will have some explaining to do. And so will Trudeau. So, you know, but I agree. We, we could be back here in 35 days with another minority. David Aiken with us, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. David, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, no problem. Cheers. Here's today's daily commentary. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has called his election that he has been hoping to have since the window closed for him last year between the first and second waves of a global pandemic. The talk back then was who was going to trigger an election the Prime Minister wouldn't call, hoping that the opposition would do it for him. That was not the case then and certainly isn't the case now, while most of what JT wanted they have given him. So if the House hasn't collapsed, why hold an election? especially when most Canadians are still hyper-focused on COVID-19 and recovering from it. We all know the answer. Justin Trudeau wants back the majority he lost last election. However, an election is only a priority for Justin Trudeau, no one else. What is in this for Canadians, especially if we end up back in the exact same place? Simply put, for the average Canadian, We all have bigger fish to fry right now. But Justin Trudeau is not an average Canadian, which is why he needs a minister of the middle class to inform him what we are all about. It's unfortunate no one told Justin Trudeau. For those of us not in his elite circles, an optional election is not a priority for Canadians during a global pandemic. But that doesn't seem to matter to Justin Trudeau. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, the statue of John A. McDonald toppled and defaced at Gore Park over the weekend. Uh, statues and monuments, obviously, a part of the headlines. Um, but uh, we do not want the largest story of indigenous, indigenous people's history and reconciliation to get lost uh, in this discussion. Where do we go from here? Um, we've uh, approached City Hall on this, various councillors and such, and, uh, and nobody's coming on today. Uh, however, uh, Ward 3 Councillor Rindernan said... Uh, who brought the original motion to have the statue removed, uh, unavailable, but did provide this comment. I'm not surprised to see the statue come down. Council has been told for years the statue is a symbol of hate and harm for Indigenous folks. Council had a chance to do the right thing and take it down proactively, especially as we continue to witness the uncovering of thousands of children in unmarked graves from residential school sites. They chose not to, and this is the consequence. Let's bring in Dr. Paulette Steves, Cree Métis Indigenous Archaeologist, Associate Professor of Sociology, Canada Research Chair in Healing and Reconciliation at Algoma University and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm doing well. Thank you. All right, Paulette, your thoughts on where we are now. How do we move forward with this discussion? Well, I think that, you know, a lot of people are not aware of the true history of so-called leaders like John A. Macdonald. Uh, if they knew the true history of genocide, they'd want the statues to come down also. So this this is not a history that we need to be reminded of every day. We live with the results of this history. We live with ongoing and intergenerational impacts of genocide in Canada every day. And it's very, very 
very hurtful, very painful to have to walk in public spaces and see uh, people like John A. McDonald um, herofied. We don't need to herofy these people. We don't need to sanitize history. Um, that's really dangerous when you sanitize history by making heroes out of people, and the whole story has been kept really out of you know education and textbook and public discussions. If people knew about the similarities between John A. Macdonald and what he did to Indigenous people in Canada and the design of genocide and colonial atrocities around the world, like King Leopold II in Belgium, who committed many well-documented atrocities. His statues have come down in the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo, which at the time was a colony, colony under, uh, under his control. And, you know, if you go to Germany, you don't see any statues of Hitler. You don't see monuments honoring the valor of Nazi soldiers. In fact, it's illegal to display Nazi imagery in Germany. So a lot of, there's a lot of similarities between John A. Macdonald's design of genocide, of killing the Indians and uh, destroying all of their culture, and it's white supremacy. White supremacy was central to John A. Macdonald's rule. It was central to King Leopold II of Belgium's rule. It was central to, um, a lot of people say, to Hitler's rule. And there's many reasons for this. We don't need to herofy colonizers who committed atrocities against indigenous people. It's 2021. People are becoming much more aware they're understanding the dangers of a whitewashed history, and we're learning to change how we teach history. So, you know, basically, Indigenous people, nobody needs to be see overwhelming statues in public or any spaces that remind us of these atrocities that people committed, because it was our grandmothers and grandfathers that they starved and incarcerated in a system of apartheid. You know, where the past system that John A. Macdonald created denied them the right to leave reservation areas and or carry out business or have even the basic necessities of life. So John A. Macdonald's crimes against humanity will never be forgotten. They are cemented into Canada's history. This does not mean we need statues of him reminding us, you know, or reminding Indigenous people of these atrocities, atrocities he, he committed, he's not a hero. Uh, he was a colonial mastermind of an attempted genocide against Indigenous people. He outlawed their cultural practices. And his legacy continues to harm generations of Indigenous people today. And Paulette, let me, now are, let me are waking up to that reality. Let me ask you this question, uh, Paulette. If John A. Macdonald, what about those leaders that followed him? Um, if removing statues, names, uh, institutions, names of institutions, that sort of thing. Um, why John A. Macdonald and not everyone else who followed him right up until uh, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau? Um, I think that people are pushing for that, that they're pushing for building names to be changed. They're pushing for healing and reconciliation. So people are asking that these... Um, memorials, this lionizing and herofying of these people that committed atrocities against Indigenous people be removed. Uh, statues in parks, names on buildings, names of streets. Toronto's going to be changing a street name. So I think, I think, you know, one thing that's happened this year with the children showing us now, starting to show us where they're buried in unmarked graves, I think this has really woken Canadians up. So in a lot of ways, Canadians don't know this history, and that's not their fault. They weren't taught this history. So Indigenous people live this history. We live with the impacts of this history. So we know it well. But I understand that it's still not taught in many areas of education, and that's why I say it's dangerous to have this whitewashed history because people can't think critically for themselves if they don't have all of the knowledge they need to really understand history. And I think they're starting to get that now, and I, I really believe that 
you know, starting to find the, the burials, uh, unmarked burials of children has really woken people up. And they're really starting to think more critically about the history they've been taught and the reality of history and treatment of Indigenous people in Canada. Um, uh, again, can we feel better about ourselves by removing a statue uh, and blaming it all on John A. And, and again, you know, I, I'm a guy in my 50s. I wasn't taught this in school either. Uh, but let's be honest, in the last 20, 30 years or since uh, I left school, and these were all, you know, slowly closed down, the stories have been out, and we've been hearing them from the Indigenous community for decades. And there are reports like the Truth and Reconciliation Report. So can we just push down a statue and say, well, it's his fault, not mine, when really at the end of the day, we're all ignorant in this. I mean, you know, you know, we could have done, meaning me, everyone else could have done more investigation when this all first started surfacing and it's not new so does pushing over a statue of john a mcdonald free the rest of us because i think you know it, there's a bit of skate uh, of scapegoatism here I, I really think that people are thinking that if they push over a statue of john a mcdonald and i'm not saying whether it's right or wrong uh that they that somehow that solves their responsibility and their issue and i don't think that's right do you paulette well i don't think that's what people are thinking at all I think that many people are hearing Indigenous people and they're hearing them say, it hurts to have to walk in a park. Yeah. It, it hurts my heart to have to see this person who did this to Indigenous people. So I don't think it's about making ourselves feel better at all. I think it's a part of healing and reconciliation. And if you're going to seriously say those two words, and, and many of our leaders and our governmental institutions they're dedicated to healing and reconciliation, then start the process. Start the process by teaching this history, by teaching the whole history, yeah. and by removing these statues. Don't make heroes out of people that did this. Right. So to the indigenous, I just want to make this clear, Paulette, to the indigenous, and I remember having this discussion uh, many years ago about the Confederate flag in the United States. Uh, and maybe you can help clarify and help the non-indigenous community understand this. But, you know, I remember, uh, you know, talking to, this was many years ago in the, uh, with, uh, professors and such in the United States and the pain that it uh, meant for black Americans to see the Confederate flag because of what it represented and slavery and such in the South years ago. And, and, you know, although some may not understand that, uh, you know, we have to put ourselves in those people's, uh, shoes and understand why they feel the way that they do. It's the same thing for the indigenous community and John A. McDonald. Is that accurate? That's pretty accurate. So you can, you can go online and look and people have, uh, created discussions and, uh, carried out news reports on the similarities between, uh, the Confederate flag and, um, Hitler's Nazi Germany. And compared the similarities. And, you and know, the pain that one feels by, on by seeing friends. those symbols. And the pain that, that one feels by, and the pain that one feels by f seeing uh, those symbols. Right. Right. You know, and if seeing those symbols is illegal in Germany, what, why are we arguing about it here when we're asking for healing and reconciliation? We know, we know many more of the facts now. Queen's University has a really good, uh, webpage with a lot of the facts on John A. McDonald. And even people in his own party said that he was far too harsh and that he was very racist. You know, this was all centered on white supremacy and racism. And, and Canadians aren't comfortable with linking that to the history of their democratic country. But, you know, you can't, you can't continue to whitewash those stories and those histories. And I think now that the facts are coming out, a lot of people will be much better informed and we need people that are in places of power and control um, to say, okay, we know this now, let's remove these statues because it's ongoing colonization. We're continuing to harm Indigenous people by making them see these people that, that created a genocide against them as heroes. And we don't need to do that. We're way beyond that. Let's make the world a better place. Let's really start the healing and reconciliation. So uh, we touched on this earlier, uh, and my point to you was, if John A. McDonald, what about the prime minister's 
that followed after him. Uh, your thoughts on that? I mean, you know, again, I can think of uh, the airport named after Pierre Trudeau uh, in Montreal. I mean, do we? That spans a long time. Do we? Do we go through all of those? I don't see why all of those couldn't be renamed and renamed in the languages and the words of the indigenous people whose territories they stand on. So there were a lot of people that were a part of ongoing colonization, a part of ongoing assimilation throughout the years. And a part of that healing is recognizing that, making those links, discussing it, teaching it, and making change to make Canada a better place, not just for Indigenous people, for all people. But I think you re- really it's up to the communities in each area to um, to have their voices heard. And do the, would they rather have you know the airport named after them or you know named after one of their relations in their language? That's up to every community every Indigenous community in Canada. And and that would be a way to honour Indigenous people. You know, it, people have said on, in many areas of the news and online discussions that Indigenous people aren't represented. It's, it's very rare that you find a statue of an Indigenous person anywhere. And why is that? This is their country. This is their homeland. This is their lands that we all live on, make our living on, work on, play on, they, they should be, of course, recognized. They should be, you know, they're the ones that should be front and center so that people can learn more about the Indigenous people whose homelands they live on. So should there be a statue of an indig- Indigenous leader next to John A., or should the John A. just come down? It should just come down. They should all come down. John A. and, you know, a lot of others that are, that are out there. I think Queen Victoria... You know, there's just a lot, and every time you see these, it hurts, because we know this history. Indigenous people know this history, and like I said, you know, I see those statues, and I'm like, oh, look, there's John A. MacDonald. He killed Louis Rael. I have no homeland. My my grandparents lost all their land because of those actions. I don't have a place I can go home to. I don't have a family community because of colonization. And this is what people need to remember. Whenever we see those statues, that immediately comes to mind. And it's a very painful thing. Are you confident, Paula, that um, that we this is a line in the sand? As you mentioned, the discovery of the graves beneath those residential schools across the country, many we still haven't uh, discovered yet. Uh, do you think this will finally be, you know, I, I'm not sure what the word change, but at least start that uh, discussion? I mean, I'm thinking even what has come out since then. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I think you hit the nail on on the head when you said, you know, this has been known for a long time by a lot of people. It hasn't been in the public's conscience because, like we know, this has not been taught in education. And when Indigenous people spoke about it, quite often it was not believed. Yeah. So what you see now with the thousands and thousands of unmarked burials is you can't deny it. And more and more people are talking about it. And that's always a good thing, because what what comes to the forefront in public discussions is that we need to change our education system. And Ontario was set to do that, and then Ford immediately cancelled uh, indigenization of curriculum. And, you know, you need to add the Indigenous perspective and the Indigenous experience and the facts that outlawed our culture, the facts that put a head tax on you could you could was get between fifty and five hundred dollars for an Indian scalp in Nova Scotia. That law was on the book until a few years ago. And you know, people just need to realize these are facts. They're not stories, they're facts. And they impact us still every day. And I think when people start thinking critically and learning more we are going to be able to make Canada a better place. We are going to be able to move toward healing and reconciliation. But truth must come first. 
And the truth is, those statues are a form of ongoing colonization that really negatively impact and hurt Indigenous people, and they need to calm down. Do you think this is something each community decides? Do you think this should be a federal policy? Is it a federal thing? Is it a provincial thing? Is it a municipal issue? I think it starts in each community, and it moves to um, regional, provincial, and federal. You know, and the federal government has acknowledged there was a genocide in Canada, and people know the federal government has acknowledged that. I don't think people fully understood uh, the Indigenous experience linked to that. But, but it's, it's, really, um, it's really kind of heartwarming to see grassroots communities in little, in cities and regional areas taking action. Because, you know, they're saying, we understand now and enough is enough. These are harmful. Dr. Paulette Steves with us, Cree Mady, Indigenous Archaeologist, Associate Professor of Sociology, Canada Research Chair in Healing and Reconciliation at Ontario's Algoma University. Paulette, thanks so much for the time. Thanks so much for sharing your, your thoughts and your stories. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you for having me on. Bye now. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The situation in Afghanistan. Some uh, incredible footage we're seeing now of uh, just the desperation of people trying to flee Afghanistan uh, and literally at the airport uh, standing on planes uh, waiting to get out, trying to uh, get aboard planes, hanging off uh, uh, stairs and, and, and such to get on the plane. It's uh, it's quite a desperate situation. Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute, and he is with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. I am indeed. Uh, we are hearing, or, or certainly have heard over the last week, as uh, really it only has taken a, a week for all of this to, to go down, how many were surprised how quickly uh, that all of this happened. Um, did, did officials not see all of this coming? Well, we knew that it was coming. Uh, I think the only people who are surprised are people who haven't been paying close attention to the assessments that have been coming out of the region um, and intelligence development sort of over the last, uh, certainly over the last year or so. But uh, in essence, uh, the assumption had always been that the Taliban were keeping their power dry. They knew that the West would get cold feet and essentially pack up and leave. Uh, there's a reason that Afghanistan is called the graveyard of empires. Um, and so the Taliban, rather than fighting their heart out against uh, a well-armed Western coalition, uh, just kind of kept things on the on the back burner and made sure that they were prepared for the moment that uh, uh, the West and in particular uh, the Americans pulled out. And we can see that they were very well prepared and perhaps better prepared than uh, one might think. And uh, on the other hand, it also appears that um, the, these, the, 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 the national army um, and the police uh, force were um, uh, perhaps even less robust and less resilient than many um, of the assessments in the West had anticipated because it appears that they are just melting away wherever the Taliban are showing up. It doesn't appear that there's a whole lot of a fight. It appears that the Taliban are largely uh, walking into most of these neighborhoods. And look, I mean, these are people who are, if your own government is fleeing the country, uh, you're probably not going to be fighting to the death. You're probably going to go, we'll fight another day and I'm just going to go home to my family. Hmm. So uh, what does this mean for the rest of the world? What does this mean for Afghanistan? Is the Taliban back? So I think the lesson for the rest of the world is that we need to, uh, I think, have some serious introspection about our arrogance and hubris about uh, what um, uh, people thought they could achieve in Afghanistan with the intervention that was underway. Um, it's an opportunity also to remind ourselves that uh, the initial mission was accomplished within the first year of the deployment. That is to say, to ensure that uh, Afghanistan does not become a safe haven for 
terrorists. And so we need to ask ourselves, what did we spend all these other years doing there? Because that wasn't part of the original mission. Um, and I think the return of the Taliban will need to see what kind of Taliban returns here. Uh, that the Taliban, of course, is not one cohesive organization. It is a host mm -hmm. of warlords. They might all turn against one another, as they did, for instance, in 2006. So we might end up with a lot more violence than we're currently seeing. Uh, the Taliban might also take the carrot that the West has dangled in terms of behaving at least somewhat responsibly and curbing some of their excesses in return for being recognized as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Um, the Taliban might try to cut a deal with places such as China that have been trying to um, essentially recruit them to make life difficult for the West. Or the Taliban could just go back to their good, their 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 terrible. Um, like what we got to know the Taliban as in the 1990s and uh, and their extreme excesses in terms of abuse of, uh, of, 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 of human rights and their extreme excesses in the values and norms to which they, uh, they adhere. The Taliban might also cut a deal with the West and say some of the Western elements can stay and provide, for instance, humanitarian support, food support, medical support. Um, and the Taliban will implement their rule, but perhaps not as cruel. Um, and I think part of this will be the litmus test about what happens with the airport and the 5,000 U.S. soldiers there. I think the Americans didn't just send soldiers there to protect their assets. They want to see whether the Taliban will engage with those soldiers or whether the Taliban will basically recognize the Americans as a as a legitimate sort of foreign authority and entity that can sort of stay in the country as long as it deals with the Taliban on the Taliban's terms. Um, so I think there's the, the next uh, three, four weeks will be really interesting to watch as to how this unfolds. Is Afghanistan now a safe haven for uh, terrorism? Uh, we remember 9-11. How concerned should uh, our allies be about that? So the Taliban have never launched an attack on the West, and they've always insisted that their sole objective is to um, is the expulsion of what they see as occupiers, colonizers uh, of Afghanistan. And so, the Taliban per se were never the aim of the mission to begin with. And I think the Taliban have learned their lesson about what happens if you harbor people who harm um, who harm the West. Uh, what I think will be more interesting to watch is the extent to which uh, the Taliban may perhaps be instrumentalized by other forces uh, into becoming an anti-Western force or into, um, again, perhaps harboring entities that might then um, either undermine Western interests or possibly launch attacks on the West, and I think that remains an open uh, that that remains an open uh, an open book. But look, I think if the way things go now, uh, the moment the Americans pull out, um, you know, I think we really have to ask ourselves, like, if if the last uh, two decades were meant to have made Afghanistan um, more stable and the country falls this quickly to the Taliban, uh, it suggests that perhaps our efforts weren't particularly uh, efficient or effective. At the same time, I think uh, it, we're not going back to the status quo ante. The vast majority of Afghans want a normal government. The support for the Taliban, uh, they're in the minority, 10 to 15 percent of the population, perhaps, that supports them and their ideology. So, and the Taliban will either need to rule by extreme brutality to try to to uh, to subjugate um, the vast parts of the population that do no longer and do not agree with them, or they might have to change their ways. And so, I think all this remains uh, the the end of this book has not been written. Uh, the Taliban have declared that the war is over. What does that say about the last 20 years? Uh, what have we learned from the last 20 years? Uh, I think we have learned that there will not be any large-scale interventions, uh, expeditionary interventions and adventures of the sort that we saw in Afghanistan anytime soon anywhere else in the world. I think we have seen Western electorates in general, and in particular, the U.S. electorate, 
really sour on this idea that the Americans, in conjunction with their partners and allies, go around the world to try to make the world a better, safer place. I think especially the American electorate is tired of paying for it. Uh, they're tired of seeing their soldiers die in faraway places, um, oh, but, uh, rightly or wrongly. And so I think it means that we're going to have a m much more limited type interventions, much smaller footprint on the ground, and we're going to ask much harder questions about what national interests are actually at stake. The sole national interest, you might argue from a Canadian perspective, that was at stake was Al-Qaeda's ability to coordinate and launch terrorist attacks out of Afghanistan. Uh, that was no longer possible within a year of us going there. And so I think um, in future missions, uh, we'll be asking much harder questions about what is the interest? When has the mission been accomplished? And I think we're going to be setting much more careful boundaries, much more limited goals, um, and be withdrawing, I think, the moment that those goals have been accomplished. I think Afghanistan has been a hard lesson for Western militaries, for Western politicians, but especially for Western electorates that I think had rather, um, uh, that had rather august yet completely unrealistic and disconnected ideas of what could be achieved uh, in Afghanistan. But as I say, I think we, there's been considerable inroads in, in changing the perceptions of much of the population. So I think this will not be the status quo ante. And we'll have to see how the Taliban makes do with a local population that in many ways is quite different from the population that was there uh, 20 years ago. Sounds a little bit like the old Vietnam days, doesn't it? Um, how? Uh, go ahead. You want to answer that? Well, I think this plays into Biden's uh, Biden's point, right? That this is not Saigon, 1975, and I totally yeah. agree with Biden. And I think, look, if it was up to Biden, my sense is that Biden might have actually stayed. But I think Biden had um, had he understood that Americans were no longer supportive of this mission or of these types of missions. He understood that that's why Trump won the quasi-civil war within the Republican Party uh, and was subsequently elected president in 2016, um, that that was a major driver of the support behind Trump. And he understands that uh, in 2021, if he wants to, if the Democrats want to have a chance of getting elected in the next electoral cycle, uh, in the U.S., and if he wants to have a chance at re-election, he needs to be attuned of where the American population is. And so I think he's he's right. This is not Saigon 1975. And yes, it is a humanitarian calamity, um, but it does not have the geopolitical repercussions that uh, Saigon 1975 had. How are neighboring countries to Afghanistan feeling about this? Uh, are, is the Taliban going to be content with what they have? Are they going to want to seize more power? Uh, more advancement, or uh, you just leave us alone, we'll be fine. Do, do you think they'll be content with that? Well, it's been a it's it's been a country that's always been surrounded by larger powers that have tried to influence and use Afghanistan uh, as an instrument for, to advance their particular interests. And so, um, I think we will see much more local geopolitical competition among Pakistan, China, Iran, perhaps even Russia, um, back in the game in in terms of what happens in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, other countries who will try their luck, in part because they, of course, neighbor Afghanistan, and so they can't just walk away the way the West did uh, and leave things and people up to their own devices. Uh, and uh, so I think the Canada will need to think about um, who it is prepared to work with um, in trying to ensure some sort of stability uh, in Afghanistan and some regional stability, even, a even in a post-withdrawal uh, situation. So where do you see this going and, 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 and what's life going to be like for, for Afghan people short term and long term? Um, at what point does Afghanistan raise a red flag again? At what point do, do, does the West say, uh-oh, it's getting out of hand again? So, Scott, this is precisely the question to ask. You know, yeah. as you know, I teach at the Royal Military College and we have pictures of every cadet who has fallen in the line of duty. And if you walk into the McKenzie building in the front doors, the first cadets, of course, for whom we don't have pictures because the technology hadn't been invented yet. But the first cadets who graduated from uh, the Royal Military College fell 
in the line of duty in that region. And so Canada, in one way or another, has had a presence with its military in that region for well over 100 years. And so my sense is, as you point out, sooner or later, we will likely be back. Um, and this has been a very challenging country and a very challenging region to contend with for Canada and for allies for well over a century. And I suspect that's unfortunately going to be the case for the next century. Christian Leprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. A real pleasure. Thank you, Scott. All right. So, uh, you know, whether it's a global pandemic or now an election, let's get the heck out of here and uh, talk about something fun. Uh, let's bring in Ron Fellows, co-owner of Canadian Tire Motorsports Park, a.k.a. Mosport, and, of course, uh, Canadian racing legend, taught the Earnhardts how to road race, as well as a pile of other drivers uh, over the years, uh, Trans Am champion. What else do I need to say? Ron, it is great to talk to you. How have you been? Good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, but I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm a little, uh, I'm getting a little frazzled here. I need some racing. I, I need things to get back to normal, man. Uh, so what is it, what has it been like for you this year? Obviously, uh, the NASCAR trucks have been canceled, uh, international event. You're bringing people across the border. That's an issue. How have you coped this season? Yeah, well, it's, it's now a second season, uh, nearly a second season of, uh, uh, lost events um you know the the again we uh as we as we mentioned several times you know the uh, a big thank you to all the the uh, healthcare workers and first responders for the job they've done through this this uh pandemic but certainly you know as a as a um in the in the entertainment business yes we've it's been a struggle you know, for two years in a row with, and all of our partners from Canadian Tire on down have been very, very supportive, uh, patiently, you know, waiting through the, the, the process here of, of, you know, dealing with the pandemic. We've uh, essentially in 2020, about mid-season, we were able to open for uh, track day, basically car club, car club track rentals. Um, yeah. We ended up with... Uh, very restricted entries for a couple of club races and some some of my uh, Motormaster karting series events. We got sort of half a season in last year, and it, and it's how 2021 has shaped up as well. We you know we went through the process of trying to um, try trying to hold on as long as we could. Um, you know, it, it's all the the this, the uh, the big series. You know, our, our Castle Victoria Day Speed Fest got canceled, and that's the that's the uh, SRO World Challenge, and again, there's that's international, and so that got canceled in April, and we hung on for as long as we could with uh, with the with the IMSA race, and and had to cancel that. And and again, um, you know, the NASCAR people were terrific, um, but the in, in the end, uh, 90 days out was was getting tight in terms of logistics for planning. Yeah. And, and it's certainly the, you know, the, the around June, you know, in early June, there was no end in sight for when the border could possibly open for, for the, you know, for all the, for the officials and teams to be able to cross the border and, and, and Goodyear needed, you know, they need to prepare to make tire, build tires for the event. And I think they need about three months to do that. So we ended up having to uh, cancel that as well. However, Mid June, we were able to open for for you know, the the car club enthusiasts and track days. Um, karting track opened in mid June as well. Uh, our Motormaster series has has now had uh, four races, and we've got the big uh, uh, Motormaster Canadian Karting Championships this weekend at our place. Um, again, it's a, it's a it's a closed event, unfortunately. However, Labor Day weekend, we Yay. will have. We will have uh, an all Canadian race series weekend with a double header with the uh, NASCAR Pinty series. So they race Saturday and Sunday. We've got the new uh, FEL sports car championship presented by Michelin, uh, the M zone uh, radical um, cup. Those are, they're sort of uh, can am looking cars. Um, 
and uh, that's also uh, uh, Michelin supported. We've got the F sixteen hundred, the the uh, really popular Nissan Sentra Cup, um, and yeah, so it should be a, a a great weekend of racing, and it's limited to we're limited to five thousand fans. So um, where, where does that leave? I know, Ron, obviously people love this track just even for, you know, the experience and the camping and such. Yeah. Is that allowed on Labor Day yeah. weekend? Yeah, camping camping, uh, camping is available, and uh, all the information is online with the COVID protocols as well. We've got uh, weekend super tickets on sale until Wednesday at midnight, and then I think they go up about uh, um, 10, 10 bucks after but you get 10 bucks off until uh wednesday at midnight and um yeah no yeah you want to get your get your tickets because we are limiting we have to limit the numbers wow that's going to be difficult even with that um so what about next year what is this any and again you know how do you plan during a pandemic but is it hope that everything next year will be just like it was before this all started yeah that that's the hope um you know we've got uh um, you know, we're on, we're on the, uh, you know, we're, we're on the schedule with them. So we're still working, you know, that's the, the, uh, July, uh, basically the July 1st through the 4th, the first weekend of July, uh, 2022, we're still working on, uh, what the Victoria day weekend will look like. Plus, uh, you know, the Chevy Silverado 250 event, what that's going to look like, um, you know, in the in the you know series around the world are, are also struggling with their yeah their 2022 planning just, just because of COVID. So all the all the schedules will come out late, announcements will come out late. But hopefully, um, you know, 2022 will be able to to have a full slate of of activities with uh, with with and welcome back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know, the drag a, is a full, this was full house. Not just not just for not just spectators, but also for you know the the, the hospitality uh, hospitality suites. You know, it's yeah. uh, it's, it's tough. And they uh, we were in uh, Trois Rivières, uh, Quebec, over the weekend. Again, it had uh, uh, limited they had limited the seating. You know, in in the in hospitality as well as in the grandstands. But boy, it was really it was great to get to. Uh, I was there with my son. He was competing in his first. Uh, NASCAR PT series race. And, um, yeah, it was just great to be at, a be at the track and be, although, although masked, uh, at a, at a, at a race weekend where there was racing and, uh, and, and some people. Yeah. That, and you know, it's uh, equally disappointing because this was most ports, uh, 60th year. So yeah, I can imagine there was lots of celebration and festivity around that. Is that going to be translated for next year? What do you do? Uh, here's my thought, Scott. <laughs> in, in 2022, it'll be the 61st anniversary, which we will try to figure out how to celebrate <laughs> since the track opened in 1961. How's that? Yeah, there you go. That's good enough. People will accept that. That's good enough for me. The dates don't have to jive anymore. No one cares. No, no. I mean, there, this wasn't this is the year of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's been a few things that have been disrupted over time, I guess, other than the 60th anniversary of the speedway, yeah. or of the race course, yeah. rather. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you have done in the off season. Uh, you know, many businesses have uh, readjusted, things that are in place uh, will stay in place after the uh, pandemic, and a lot of people have, have used the opportunity to spend on infrastructure and such. I guess uh, what I'm asking, are the condos built yet, Ron? <laughs> no scott <laughs> no no condos yet no no okay uh no we have um you know our our uh you know our our, our main partner carlo Pedani. you know we, what we did was we looked at the downtime downtime both leading into a late start in 2020 as well as 2021 and uh took advantage of the opportunity to to do some upgrades to the like we need to do some some repaving of the Grand Prix circuit, so we have done that. In uh, so we've got a essentially a, um, a new surface on the on the 2.45 mile uh, Grand Prix circuit. So that that was uh, and, and again, you know, we're, we're so is that down, resurfaced? Uh, is that resurfaced all around, Ron? Like the whole yeah. thing? 
Yes, sir. Wow. So what will that do to speeds, performance, that sort of thing? How does that change what you've known for a long time? Yeah, typically, you know, typically there's a, once the, uh, there'll be, a, you know, with, with this, this high density asphalt that, that is required, it tends to have, go through a, a window of uh, being slick initially. Then as it, as it, uh, as it, sort of gets gets some rubber on it the the isis i would expect to see you know lap times and we'll see we'll see with the uh with the nascar pinty series and the and the fl michelin sports car championship and 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 see how the you know the real race tires take it at labor day weekend but um you know you'll, you'll the, essentially you, we should see you know uh uh faster faster lap times and then it'll and then it'll you know, as it, as it ages, it'll, uh, um, you'll start to lose, you'll start to lose lap time as the, as the tar sort of works out of the surface again. So I can just imagine what that paving bill was. Uh, uh, are, are you getting the feeling, Ron, that road racing is really, uh, becoming popular? We've seen NASCAR add more series to it. I was watching Watkins Glen a couple of weeks ago and I thought of you. I think you said you had finished second there to Jeff Gordon and Tony Stewart way back when. Yes, we've, um, I I don't, we've, we've had some really good, really good races at, at Watkins Glen, you know, and, uh, and the uh, Camping World Truck Series, Xfinity Series, got wins there in those two. Men did not manage to get a, a cup win, and we had plenty of opportunities. Yeah, there was a couple of seconds. There was a, there was a couple of top fives. I think the a, a one that I felt slipped away was uh, 2007 when I, when I ran with um, uh, Hall of Fame Racing, and I think it was even the year before with DEI we we uh, yeah the, the second place finish against uh, Tony Stewart was one that we uh um we had a an untimely pit stop that uh, just didn't go, kind of go you know it was just it's the lucky yeah. draw it was the, the timing didn't work for when we did our last green flag stop and and I couldn't catch Tony at the end and and uh in 07 um in the Hall of Fame car for uh Roger Staubach and Troy Aikman, we had a bad fast car. And because qualifying got rained out, we started in the back. And then uh, the driver got a speeding penalty and (laughs) went from, went from last to uh, fourth um, at the end. And that was, that was probably one of the, you know, the, the, the DEI car, one of the the tied cars I raced and certainly that hall of fame car was, uh, that I drove were, were the, my best opportunities to win. And, and uh, um, anyway, this, yeah, it, certainly, certainly some frustration as you can tell, but gosh, it's just a, it, it the Glen is a, is a great place, very similar to the entire Bartford park, you know, long, long, fast corners, old school racetrack um, and races really well. And, and uh, yeah, cer- certainly when you look at, you know, we look at how popular, you know, you know, forget about the popularity of road racing and and, and where NASCAR is, is certainly going and, and increasing the number of road races. And, and, you know, the you know, TV ratings and, and fan support, you know, doesn't lie. But if you look at if you look at our facility, we're when we, you know, even in a full season, we're sold out of track days. Yeah, and those are the those are the car enthusiasts that are coming with their, you know, everything from. Uh, you know the uh, um, you know front wheel drive, inexpensive to you know the you know the the high you know super high performance sports cars coming out yeah. to coming out to play. You know, the, and the how do talk talk to, to us a little bit to that? So that's you know, that's uh, um, you know we're in a, we're in a, certainly in a good position that way. So talk a little bit about that, because a lot of people just think that, you know, tracks like this, they run their main events and then that's it. But there's the clubs and, and such, so people can get their hot rods and take them on a track. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's car clubs, uh, and, you, and you can find the, on, on our website, there's uh, how to get on track. And there are, there are clubs that you can, you can participate with and, you know, get some, if you're a novice, uh, you know, they've got, they've got instructors and, you know, whether you've got a Corvette, Porsche, you name it, uh, 
or a uh, or a you know a Honda Civic R. <laughs> yeah, uh, yep. you, you can you can you can take it on track. So there's there's plenty of ways to do it and 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 do it in a you know a safe and controlled environment um, and, and have a really enjoyable day. And, that's, and that's amazing. The, that's the and it's the the you know the the bread and butter of of our road course is uh, the Monday to Friday track rentals and and the car enthusiasts that 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 come out um, come out to enjoy enjoy a day of high performance driving. I uh, can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on, uh, first of all, I thought I found it fascinating yesterday. There's two points here. Fascinating that uh, NASCAR was racing at Indianapolis, and they're on the road course. They're not yeah. on the other track, which to me is that's monumental there. Um, and the other uh, uh, thing I wanted to ask you about was Jimmy Johnson, obviously seven-time champion, uh, gives up uh, his NASCAR Cup Series and goes open-wheel racing in the Indy Series and is having some difficulty. Talk about how hard it is to translate uh, to transition from one car to another like that. Yeah, it, it when you've grown up, you know, Jimmy didn't grow up road racing, so that there's there's uh, one battle he he has to overcome. Um, and and the biggest the biggest the other one is the the, the downforce difference you know the, the amount of the amount of cornering force that an indie car creates you know the you know for me for me growing up you know I, I did get an opportunity to, to race higher higher downforce cars that whether it was the the trans the Trans Am Series Camaro the the GT Le Mans Corvette um, even the the um, the prototype Ferrari and, and some of the testing I did with the Cadillac Lamont prototype. You know, those are, you know, the, the, those cars have certainly the, the, the prototype cars have downforce, you know, similar or greater to an Indy car. So that, that's invaluable, um, training in preparing for that. So that, that in, in, in no slap against Jimmy's age, but certainly at 45 years old, jumping in an Indy car for the first time, that's, uh, he's a, he's a brave guy, but he's, you know what? It, it all uh, all the power to him to to uh, just go ahead and 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 jump in in the deep end. And, and quite frankly, uh, he he's done <laughs> a really good job. It's it's highly mm. competitive. You know, you look at uh, yeah, you, you look at how how good any car drivers are, and, and it's and it you know there there are no slouches. And those cars, it's difficult to find any kind of uh, performance advantage. When they all are in a in a similar chassis, unlike Formula One, as competitive as it is, that it, it's the teams all build their own cars. Well, Indy cars don't like that. It's more, yeah. it's a little bit more spec car. Although you've got, you know, the, the Chevy and Honda power, and certainly some opportunity to do some tuning, but it, you know, it's it's essentially uh, a super tight field with great drivers and and. and you know, my hats off to Jimmy for giving it a go, and, and he's and he's getting better. You know, he stayed this past weekend, stayed on the lead lap. That's uh, that's awesome. So, you know, he's he's getting there. And that Indy Road Course is uh, is it, it's not super difficult, but it's tricky enough to where that you've got you know basically once you get through uh, turn one, two, three, uh, that the section that is in the infield it's tricky. It is. It looked like a very, very competitive track, and certainly one that's uh, obviously a lot more humbling than what we think. Ron Fellows with us, Canadian racing legend, co-owner of Canadian Tire Motorsports Park, aka Mosport. And don't forget Labor Day weekend. Uh, limited attendance uh, with uh, about five thousand, but uh, they are open for business with a couple of Pinties races and uh, other Canadian events as uh, as well. So that's uh, coming up Labor Day weekend at Canadian Tire Motorsports Park. Ron, as always, love talking. And thanks so much. We'll chat again, and hopefully next year will be a little bit better than the last two. Awesome. Thanks for thanks for having me on, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.